Every year was the same. The crystal would be dusted off, the linen tablecloths would be carefully ironed, tables filling the dining room and front room would be set up and set perfectly. The adults would take the long table in the back, the kids would have their own, and there would be an extra table for any additional guests that decided to show up at the last minute. They always did. My memory looks back and sees one of those all-too-perfect movie holidays. The uncles would wear their ugliest sweaters. The kids would linger in the kitchen, hoping to get into the pies and the cookies. There would be dogs running around, grandparents catching up, the parents mingling awkwardly. Everything looked as it should. We would give thanks for being together. No matter what life had done to us in the past year, we would sit together, break bread, and immediately argue about politics and religion. Yes, things were perfect. I think this sounds like many families around Thanksgiving. I don't know about any of you, but does this sound like your family? Uh I see a few hands. As I grew older, I started to learn that things weren't quite what they seemed. My one aunt would nervously linger in the kitchen the entire evening. She secretly hoped her husband would never find out about her previous marriage to a Baptist, no less. My uncle, a Chicago cop, would scream the agenda of Pat Buchanan and throw in some racism for good measure, all while pointing his fork at you. There was the closeted uncle, knowing the family would never accept him, and the closeted nephew, knowing the same. The matriarchs of the family lived and breathed a mantra that is printed, packaged, and sold on countless things these days. Keep calm and carry on. It's one thing to have it on your coffee mug. It's another thing to believe it, even in the face of ruin. Yes, things were perfect. No problems here. But each year there was one more empty chair in the house, either knowingly or unknowingly. People would find themselves on the road to being estranged. The tables were less full, but they were always set. The crystal remained polished. Slowly but surely, the estrangement continued until we all found ourselves sitting at separate tables, miles apart, keeping calm, carrying on. Everything was perfect. This is but one example of a single family falling apart for various and complicated reasons. But I can't help but wonder if any of you have suddenly found an empty chair at your table. Who have you found that was no longer welcome for complicated reasons? How about in your work life or in your community? How about here at First Parish or in our nation? I ask these things because this is a story of not just my family, your family, or families across Concord, Middlesex County, and New England. This is a story repeated time and time again. This is a story for all of us. Broken, bounding along, setting empty tables, looking to renew our connections with others, charging on to tackle despair, and sometimes limping away. We often find ourselves wondering what on earth went wrong, and what could could we possibly do to return to wholeness and hope. This is a story that has larger implications than Thanksgiving dinner, though it has everything to do with Thanksgiving. 
This country, as I was taught in elementary school, was founded on a great hope. A hope that saw brothers and sisters of various backgrounds, dreams, and creeds sitting down and joining in fellowship as they forged a new nation. Everything was perfect. The hope was alive, but slowly and surely, as this country grew older, things weren't quite what they seemed. We found our people torn apart by slavery and the Civil War, generations of women seeking out the right to vote, the struggles faced by countless waves of immigrants, the Civil Rights era, and the continuance of that era in this very day. These are growing pains that have not gone away. Their effects have been with us since Bull Run, Seneca Falls, Ellis Island, Selma, and now Ferguson. When the grand jury determination was announced in Ferguson, Missouri this past Monday, I found myself staring in disbelief, listening to the awkward self-congratulating press conference, and I found myself experiencing a profound grief. I mourned for Michael Brown and his parents. His life was cut, cut far too short, and his family found one more empty chair at their Thanksgiving table. I mourned for Ferguson and black communities across the nation because this isn't the first time this has happened. And I mourned for Darren Wilson, who proclaimed his conscience is clean, while a young man was still cold and buried because of another's actions. I also found that I was arguing with myself. I don't know about any of you, but I truly want to believe that the system is just. I want to believe that due diligence was performed, that yes, the process of reaching their determination was reasonable, and that we should all look to healing and moving beyond this. I want to accept the idea that this is not a common occurrence, that black youth do not need to fear the people that are there to keep the peace. Most of all, I wanted to believe more than anything that blacks and whites and all the people that make up this nation could sit back down at the table of brother and sisterhood and reinvest in the dream that was America. I cannot, in good conscience, believe those things anymore. In trying to come to terms with the events of Ferguson and what that means for our country, the words of the prophet, prophet Jeremiah ring true. They have treated the wounds of my people carelessly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. There is an ugly truth to the events in Ferguson. It is a truth that does not even begin to touch upon the grief being felt by so many. It is a truth that sheds no tears at the deaths of young people of color by unnecessary violence. It is a truth that simply states the system is working as intended. Outside of the particularities of whether or not the prosecutor was doing his job right, whether the police should shoot to kill, shoot to disarm, or not shoot at all, I cannot help but realize that we are faced with a reality that puts minorities at an automatic disadvantage when it comes to opportunity and justice. We are, of course, talking about the issue of privilege. And that is just a loaded word, privilege. 
As a white man in the United States, I am afforded privileges that people of color have to fight for every single day. Beyond knowing that education and opportunity come more easily to someone like me, there are subtler privileges that I am granted. I hardly ever have to worry about being judged based on my clothing choices, and in the very least, people won't deem me a thug or trouble because of them. People do not follow me when I walk into the store. I am never asked to speak on behalf of my entire race. I am not awarded bizarre compliments such as, you are so articulate for someone like you. And I do not have to fear the police. Definitely know that when I have children of my own, I will not have to fear for them when it comes to law enforcement. When I was first exposed to this idea of being a person of privilege, I have to admit I laughed. I came from a family that had nearly lost it all. I knew what scraping together pennies was like. I knew what it was like to be made fun of for being the poor kid. And on top of it all, as an LGBT American, I knew this sting of oppression. How dare someone tell me that I was privileged? But eventually, disbelief turned into reflection. I thought long and hard on who I am and how society treats me. I thought about all the times I was welcomed, all the times I found a place already set for me. All of this required me to step back from my own life for a moment and reach out to those close to me. I had to look at how my friends of color were treated. I had to listen to their stories, hear their pain, and acknowledge that while I live in a world that would rather be colorblind, the world they face every single waking moment is one with sharp racial divides. Those divides have been with us all for a very long time. In realizing that, yes, I was part of a system in this country that overwhelmingly favors white Americans, I found my heart breaking in a million different places. This problem we face is so much a part of our culture. It is American as apple pie. So how does someone even begin to engage this? Our senior minister, Reverend Howard Dana, shared his own reflections on Ferguson at the beginning of this mess. And he challenged us to look around Concord and see the diversity that we already have. It's there. I would go one step further and challenge all of us to also look around at the diversity we have in this very room. Each encounter we have is an opportunity to learn something expand our appreciation of the differences in ourselves and others. By doing so, we become acutely aware of these sharp divides that still exist between white and black, rich and poor, gay and straight, citizen and visitor. We find ourselves more willing to speak up for those that are suffering, such as those in Ferg- as the people in Ferguson are suffering as well. From this, we find an increased richness in all of our daily interactions with those around us. I believe that this is our work. This is our spiritual calling to add to the chorus of voices that acknowledge the grief that Ferguson is experiencing, to use the privileges we are given to be a resounding voice. And it's needed. It's needed more than you would think. As of this morning, Ferguson is hardly in the news 
And I have to wonder, are we destined to repeat these events over and over again? Will we see Ferguson's from California to Massachusetts? As Unitarian Universalists, we have a great and enduring legacy. We have a legacy of answering the call to transform our world, a legacy of marching, fighting, and loving the oppressed, and loving the oppressors, too. We cannot let such a legacy that echoes back through our history be snuffed out by indifference. I'm going to tell you that it's going to be difficult work, and it can be heartbreaking work. We may find ourselves a little worse for wear, ragged, limping, limping, wondering where we will end up. But know that you are always beloved in the good work that you strive to do. And this is even just in the beginning to engage this vast racial and cultural divide we face. I need to be honest in acknowledging that this may sadly take generation upon generation to see the pain of Ferguson fully healed and to see the dream of Selma fully realized. I cannot say that I have this all figured out. I am not here to be someone that is enlightened on this matter. I am working on this as well, and it will take time. However, the result of this work is that abiding delight that transforms one life at a time. We find that we are entering into the season of Advent, a season where we often find ourselves giving thanks, singing songs of praise, and looking to find renewed hope and great joy. For our Christian brothers and sisters, Advent is also the darkest time of year. It is a time when we sit, wait, and pray for the light to return. We can celebrate what is good and right. There is no shame in this. But so much of our world is still in need of the coming light. Here, at First Parish, is a place where the spark of hope can be rekindled. For Ferguson, for Concord, for you, and for myself. As we leave this season of Thanksgiving and look toward Advent, we may find we are walking away from a table that is falling apart, perhaps even shattered to pieces. The dreams and hopes that we brought to it were not what they seemed or were outright ignored. But we can still find ourselves coming back again and again. There is another way, and it starts with everyone here. May we find ourselves lucky to have an opportunity to begin again, an opportunity to mourn with Ferguson, to mourn with the oppressed, to be a voice that speaks to justice. Let this be our prayer today and in all days. Blessed be and amen.